Welcome to show 39 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being recorded at the Meetings Industry Association's annual conference taking place in Bloomsbury in London, where a number of high-profile speakers are discussing and debating the current state of the meetings, conference and event sector. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and I'm pleased to say that three of those speakers have agreed to join me on the uh, show today. Coming up later, I'll be chatting with Jane Sunley, founder and CEO of Employment Engagement Consultancy and tech provider Purple Cube. And also Deirdre Wells OBE, who is the CEO of UK Inbound, a trade body for member organisations involved in inbound tourism to the UK. But to kick off the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Trevor Williams, who is Professor of Economics and Finance at Derby University. And he's also a member of the Institute of Economic Affairs Shadow Monetary Policy Committee. So welcome to the show, Trevor. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, now, Trevor, you've just finished your talk here at the uh, conference. Um, and I guess your role was really a bit of a macro scene setting presentation on the wider UK economy. Um, but f- so really, for the benefit of those listeners who didn't get to hear from you, what's the top line summary of the uh, UK economy? Uh, economic outlook at the moment? Well, as you said, Russell, I was talking about the general economic backdrop, and the first bit I looked at was the risks to the global economy, which I identified as principally being Brexit, um, what happens with policies from Trump in the US, fears of adventurism from Russia, the Middle East, and of course, the largest economy in the world uh, in purchasing power adjusted terms, which is China. So what happens to China affects all of us. Mm. Um, So I looked at some of those risks. I then focused uh, more uh, closely on Brexit and the risks that uncertainty derails some of the economic activity that would have otherwise have occurred in the UK. And then looked at what kind of Brexit. I suspect we'll have a hard Brexit, which is one where we leave both the customs union uh, and the single market, and that will have the biggest impact on the UK. And our focus clearly in future, from an overarching policy perspective, must be for the UK to forge trade deals to replace the lost trade deal uh, that it had with the EU. And since the UK is a trading country, it needs to do that as quickly as it can after uh, we have left the EU because we can't do that whilst we are a member. Yeah. Now, there's, the, I mean, you touched on a lot of things there. We could be doing podcasts on, on each of those and, and, and talking all day. Um, but, but in terms of the, the events, meetings, conference sector I- itself, is, is there any one challenge that you think is, is bigger than the rest and, um, you know, and, and how any of those issues may play out? How, how do you, you know, plan for the, for the impact that that may have, you know, for all these, these people that are here today? Well, I think, first of all, I, I did show a slide which uh, gives the change in output in the uh, meetings and events sector um, over time. And it's more cyclical and volatile than overall growth in the economy. And it appears to already be slowing in response to the uncertainty generated by our Brexit vote last year. And this isn't to say it's dramatic, um, but growth in the sector has turned negative uh, year on year, which means that there are fewer meetings and events compared with the same basis of the year before. And that's clearly, it seems to me, related to international events and uncertainty and the fact that business investment growth in the UK has slowed. Mm. And whilst we're seeing strong consumer spending growth, um, I think that meetings and events are clearly related to what firms are thinking about the future and what they're planning. Of course, there's still meetings and events taking place. It's just that they're somewhat lower than they were the previous year. It was interesting, the slide you showed, it tends to, like, the the, um, the turns positive or negative in the events uh, sector tend to lead what's happening in the rest of the economy. They absolutely do, and, and one would expect that, in fact, because if you think about the way that the data is collected, the data is collected after something 
uh, slowdown has taken place, yeah. whereas events and so on precede it because firms will slow down uh, their activity. Um, and it's immediately felt in the fact that they will have fewer conferences, they're cutting back on costs, one would presume, and they are, of course, planning for the future, but in terms of expansion planning and the driving force of meetings, it will be more about what's happening internally uh, within companies mm. and how much that is externalised through meetings and events. And I suspect that um, it's quite natural for us to therefore see the sector leading changes in the overarching economy. And um, one of the things that you talked about um, was the weakening pound, obviously, you know, due to Brexit, although you did mention it was it was sort of dropping before then as, as well. But for this sector, that's a good thing, isn't it, in terms of conference organisers here in the UK, because it's cheaper for people to visit and maybe perhaps tag on a tourist you know, trip around their stay too. And it's also, I'd assume, good for the exhibitors who are exporting their services, products abroad. Um, you know, or is that benefit offset by the fact that foreign firms may not want to buy from the UK post-Brexit. What, what's your thoughts on all that? Well, I mean, I think that the, f the, the foreign element uh, of meetings uh, and events is probably holding up because, yes, the UK would be a good place to hold meetings and events given the fall in the currency, and I'm mm. sure that that is taking place. It's also a welcoming environment, um, and we've seen lots of tourist flows as a result of the fall in the currency. But the overarching growth in the sector is driven by what happens domestically. Mm. And I think that that's the message, that the slowdown in those bits of the domestic economy who are worried about these events has already be begun to show up in uncertainty about right. the future and therefore cutting back preemptively, I suspect. Yeah. It may mean that if things don't turn out to be as bad as they think, that then we see some accelerated activity in this sector, which also means that it leads any upturn. But I suspect that the fall in the currency is not sufficient to offset the domestic right. implications of Brexit, amongst other things. And actually, if you look at the wider economy, by the way, Russell, the fall in the currency is clearly um, not driven an export boom for us. And that may be because the fall in the currency is not enough at this point to mm. do that. And it requires a further fall in the currency. And that may be forthcoming. Who knows okay. what happens next? Fr from an outside you know, outside to the industry, it, it appears there's never any shortage of, of events to go on any one day. So, so, so as an example, I looked on Eventbrite's uh, website for today, and as well as this conference, which which uh, showed up there, there, there's over 300 other events of varying prices to attend and, and listed, um, sort of like within easy reach of, of where I live. So, so just. Bear with me one second. I'll, I'll, I've got a list here. So there's everything from Google Analytics training to business banking, intellectual property clinic, facing the challenges of the UK legal market, stress management for managers. And there was even one called Chelsea Ladies Who Latte, uh, which is for people who want to network for free with inspirational business women. So I'm, I'm guess I'm, you know, that, that's one that I can't go to because it seemed like it was a, a, a women-only event. Uh, but my point being, this sector looks pretty healthy. And despite all the advances in, in online meetings, you've got free calls over Skype and, and, and all that kind of stuff, various collaboration tools, you still can't beat meeting and networking face-to-face. -face. And so I just wondered what your take on the conference... I, I know you do a lot of talks at, at events like this. What's your take on that on the whole sector? Well, first of all, long may it continue, given I do talk, so it's good to <laughs> see, Russell, that so many meetings and events are taking place. I just wish I'd been invited to more. Um, setting that aside, I, I totally agree that face-to-face um, -face can't be beaten. Yeah. And I think that the personal touch and human contact and seeing 
uh, you know, the white of someone's eye can't be uh, beaten in any, um, any, any, in any other uh, uh, way of communicating. Um, so I, I think that it's a, it's a vital uh, industry and um, it's not on the verge of collapse, but, uh, and I certainly think that he has a healthy future. Uh, but at the margin, um, and remember when we're looking at growth year over year, we're looking at small percentage changes. Mm. And it's just that the volume um, is not as strong as the volume the previous year is what we're currently beginning to see. Whether it stops at this level is interesting, um, um, but we don't know that yet. Yeah. Let's see how things unfold when we actually trigger Article 50, 50. It may well be, by the way, that once it's triggered, there'll be lots more meetings and events about what happens next. That's true, that yeah. create that might offset yeah. some of the domestic slowdown for firms thinking about expansion plans. They may put expansion plans on hold, but they may be talking a lot more about how they offset any potential uh, negatives uh, from the actual triggering of Article 50 yeah, and yeah. Um, and what it means for them. Yeah, there'll uh, be. I assume there'll be loads of yeah. events about advice on what Ab to do. Absolutely, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for anyone listening to this podcast, I'm more than happy to have those discussions. <laughs> well, we're, uh, well, I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But uh, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you actually was, um, and I mentioned at, at the top of the interview, your your role at the Institute of Economic Affairs, um, yes. which is uh, so your role is the Shadow Monetary, uh, or you're on the, the Shadow Monetary yeah. Policy Committee. T tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, <coughs> I'm a rotating chairman of that. I'll be uh, full chair from uh, from April for a year um, with Andrew Lilico of European Economics. Um, it's an organisation, the Institute of Economic Affairs is a li li liberal think tank, which means that it believes in free markets and free trade. And um, we are a group which talks about, set up a few months after the actual MPC in 1997, uh, and it's a group which talks about what the actual MPC should do, what the challenges facing it are, and give our own uh, vote on where monetary policy should be going. And it's made up of lots of uh, well-known um, uh, academic uh, and professional UK economists, so we think it's a significant body. Right. We sometimes write letters in the FT and get ignored. <laughs> so, so is that the best place? Going back to what you were saying about speaking, is that the best place to find you, or where, where can someone contact? Uh, actually, you? I can be contacted there. Absolutely, we we have a monthly uh, newsletter. Um, okay. uh, we vote each month, and it's released through the uh, website of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Okay. Um, so just uh, but also also I can be found at trevorwilliams.biz or trevorwilliams.co.uk. Perfect. Excellent plug. That's a, a, a really appreciate you uh, giving up some time to, to chat. Thanks for joining the show. Absolutely, Russell. Thank you for having me. YOLO Communications' proven market research and insight results give you invaluable information to make informed decisions. Surveys, social media and audience intelligence anywhere across the world. Call 0207 7030 39000 or email info at to find out how we can help drive your marketing and communications. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast here at the MIA conference with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now is Jane Sunley. Jane is founder and CEO of Purple Cubed, an employee engagement consultancy and also a tech provider, which we'll come to talk about uh, in a little bit. But Jane's just been chairing a panel at the uh, conference on a topic that regularly gets discussed on this show, actually, and that's of industry talent. Jane, do you want to share with us um, what the key headlines were that, that came out of that panel discussion? Yeah, I will. I think people originally wanted to talk about recruitment, but of course what's really important is not just getting the right people, it's keeping them, engaging them, making sure that they can be productive and profitable because you're doing the right things with them. Well, I'm keen to get um, some of your thoughts on, on the issues that, that were raised. Um, and obviously, one of those you know, was Brexit, so let, let's get that out of the way first. Um, the, the theme of the conference is 
don't stop, rethink. Um, so do you believe the meetings, conference and events industries need a rethink about how they recruit, taking account of Brexit? Or are we not yet in a position to know what the impact might be? I think people always need to keep rethinking because the world moves so fast and it is really a different place than even five years ago, but certainly ten years ago. So I think let's not get too hung up about Brexit. You know, nobody really knows what's going to happen. But there will always be some issue that will affect recruitment and retention and you know mm. we've got the highest ever employment at the moment so I think that's more of an issue in a way how do you find the talented people that you need and then how do you keep them with you yeah okay well related to that your, your session was actually uh, titled time for UK talent to shine alongside its global peers so do you think organizations are placing enough emphasis on nurturing UK talent no I don't and I think they okay. all need to stop and have a bit of a plan and that was apparent in our session because it was quite interactive and people were saying oh yeah we don't really have a plan for that and we could do that better so I think people need to stop and think and have a bit of a plan about how are we going to be a an employer of choice a best place to work so that people want to work there one of the things that came up actually in in the conversation in in the panel was about life skills um, and the new generation coming through what's your thoughts on on that yeah it's quite interesting because my my panel co uh, co panelist if you like Chris Shepherdson from chess who's been in recruitment all his life although he also does other things uh, along the lines of leadership and, and publishing now he was saying that you know it is a different world in that people aren't as rounded education in the past used to spend more time rounding the individual and now the focus is almost exclusively on academic results and so I think employers have to take some responsibility for that not just because they had to do it themselves but you know it's the place now where everybody needs to be rounding off the individual giving them life skills how to be a great employee how to do the basics really Mm. I guess that needs uh, nicely onto what you do for a living at at Purple Cubed Um, could you give us an example of how you've worked with a client in this sector in terms of helping them retain their talent and and improve engagement with with their employees then yeah I can there's a company called Valor who are a franchise business so they're quite interesting because they will manage different brands like Crown Plaza and Holiday Inn and so on and we're sitting in a Holiday Inn now so I guess it's a bit relevant and they went in they had a new CEO new HR director went in and did the right things around making sure their culture was very clear, recruiting to their culture, making sure they engage their people, making sure that their leaders are role model leaders and embracing and reinforcing the culture every day. And they had amazing results in that they were seventh in group at the beginning of the year and by month 11 they were top in group. And that's only by doing the right things around their people. So there's a great case study on our website, on our Purple Cubed website, if anybody wants to Can you go into a bit more depth in terms of what you've actually done? I can. We uh, did a lot of work around defining the culture and making sure it was very clear. We helped them do some work with their leaders at all levels, not just the top guys and not just the middle guys, Mm. everybody, on making sure that they could reinforce all of that and keeping the messages simple. And then we put in a piece of technology that allowed them to open up two-way dialogue to do things like manage performance and succession, but also to get ideas and innovations, to make sure people were informed on how various parts of the group were doing and so on and so forth. And it had 
thousands and thousands of hits in the first month right. and right. everybody wanted that information. So it just goes to show if you put these things in place, people crave to, to have a, a tool, really. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I said at the top of the show that you're a, a technology provider. Um, so I was wondering if you can give a bit more information on some of the software and the apps that you develop for these companies to help you know those employers over, overcome some of the challenges that they face with, the, with their well, employee engagement. I would love to, Ross. Uh, our main product is called Talent Toolbox. And it sort of does what it says on the tin in that it's a one-stop shop for all things people so that people have almost their own intranet and they know where to go, not only to get results or see the latest video from the CEO or to answer a pulse check survey, but also to do things like setting their own goals, managing their own development, making sure they have regular reviews and one-to-ones. So it's all about opening up dialogue. And what it will also do is people can sit different bits of technology either from us or from somewhere else on there so everything's in one place because what's happening at the moment is nobody knows what to buy it's all there's all such cool fabulous stuff out there yeah, but a lot of it's not working because nobody's really managing it and it doesn't all talk to each other and what what about in terms of companies that are across different territories do you offer that in different languages as well uh, yeah, I think it's on about 19 languages so far. Okay. We always say, you know, if you if you trade in England, do it in English because it's our business language and, and you should be encouraging people to do it in this in this uh, tongue. But we've got clients in you know, Botswana, Peru, wow. all across the States, all over the place. So, yeah, we've, uh, by necessity, put it into different languages, which has been a, an interesting and fun journey. I'm sure. Uh, now, bringing it back to your panel discussion and the topic of talent retention, one, one of the key points... Uh, or one of the, the, the topics obviously discussed was, was recruitment. What tips can you give companies to help get their recruitment right? And obviously, you know, thinking about this particular sector of meetings, conferences, events. I think, uh, first of all, people should speed it up, so make it as simple as possible. I'm not saying don't do it in a robust way, but don't pe- keep people hanging around and make them come to 10 interviews and all the rest of it, which does happen, yeah. because good talents will be snapped up, so you haven't got time to mess around. And it also says something about your company if you can't make a decision, to be honest. So the other side of that is having a really robust process that is absolutely about recruiting to the culture, because you can train skills whatever level you know but if you have someone who does not fit into your culture it's never really going to work and beyond that it could be a disruptor so I think recruit to the culture recruit fast make good decisions about people and let peers recruit them so bring them in let them work alongside uh, their new colleagues because it's more likely that a those colleagues will want to make it work and b they will know what they're getting and that's so important these days something that came up in your discussion was um, the uh, company review site Glassdoor so I was just thinking what, what you thought. Is that a helpful resource or a distraction? I think it's um, been helpful in a slightly negative way in that it's made people think, oh, my goodness, I need to get my scores up. I, mean, I was with somebody last week who said, oh, we've gone from two to four on Glassdoor, and they were very pleased. Mm. Uh, and I think also, you know, why shouldn't people have a voice? It's how it works now. People will go on the Facebook and say, what's it like to work at X place? Yeah. Um, so it's just a, another tool, I guess, that, that will help people to be a bit more informed. Is it easier to moan or than, than be positive, though? It's always easier to moan than be yeah. positive. But the, the, the clue is to, or the, the key is to make sure that people want to say how great you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so, so just to finish off then, how, overall, how do you think the meetings, conferences and, and events sector is positioned for, say, let's say the next 12 to 24 months with regards to recruitment, but also in, in particular retention of, of its talent? Well, one of the things that came out of the session today, and I do agree with this, is that they've actually got a lot of opportunities because it's generally a fun place to work. And of course, you might 
have to work quite hard. But if you're into the whole events industry, and I know from work with universities that so many students and graduates now are interested in working in events because it's cool. Mm. So I think they have got an advantage. And as long as they do all the right things to make sure that the reality belies the, the story behind it, then I think you know the, the opportunities are great for them. Brilliant. Nice way to finish. Uh, Jane Sanley, thanks for taking some time out of the conference to chat to me. Uh, we're, we're back shortly to speak with the CEO of UK Inbound, uh, Deirdre Wells, OBE, after this quick reminder of where to subscribe to the show. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast being recorded at the MIA Conference in London with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me for my final interview of the day is Deirdre Wells, OBE. Uh, now, Deirdre is the CEO of UK Inbound, a trade body for member organisations involved in inbound tourism to the UK, and she's just been on a panel discussing life beyond Brexit and uh, what it will mean to this particular sector as a whole. Are you worried? Uh, well, good afternoon, Russell. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Pleasure. Um, I think... What characterises our industry really is resilience and I think that in terms of the short-term opportunities that Brexit shows us, then actually uh, our confidence levels among our members is actually very strong. Now that's mainly due to the fall on the pound, so that makes the UK quite a competitive place for uh, inbound visitors, whether they're hosting events or coming for leisure purposes. I think in terms of more long-term uh, my confidence, I suppose, is more to do with what um, the how the negotiations will pan out. So um, if we get the right sort of support for our uh, workforce, particularly in terms of our migrant workforce, if we have continue to have access to our the single aviation market, which is really critical for the 70% of our visitors that come by air, then that will be a very strong signal to the industry that actually we are going to get a good deal um, post-Brexit. And I think particularly for people who are coming from overseas, what the look and feel of the uh, ports and airports will be like will be critical. So both in terms of logistics, so how easy will it be for people to transit through our ports and airports, but actually how will it feel, what will the welcome be like, both in terms of people feeling welcome to Mm. the UK and actually how can we continue to deliver a fantastic customer service once people get to our, our venues and our accommodation providers. Well, it's probably a good time, actually, for me to ask you, what you know, if you can tell us a little bit about what UK Inbound does for, it, for its members. So, as you say, we're a trade association, so we um, have a 370 members, uh, tour operators, hotels, attractions, uh, and service providers to the industry. Um, the key thing here is bringing inbound visitors to the UK, Um, We do two key things. One is around lobbying government on behalf of the industry. So I sit on the government's Tourism Industry Council, representing the views of the inbound industry. Um, But I also organise a number of events around the country um, to uh, enable our members to grow business, um, inbound business. We host the UK stand at World Travel Market, for example, which um, sees over 50,000 visitors every year bringing, you know, looking to buy UK products. So it's a really important platform for my members. Um, So, yes, I mean, one of the key things is for us is to how can we can support our members to grow their business either through helping them to make connections within the industry or actually to champion their views to government. 
So talking of uh, lobbying government that you, you just mentioned there, I, I saw on your website you hosted a roundtable meeting in February of CEOs of inbound uh, travel companies and that they raised a number of concerns over, over Brexit um, and that you also had Joel Smith from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport in attendance who, according to your report of the meeting, um, he said he would feedback the issues that you raised directly into the Brexit negotiations. So I was just wondering if you could give us an idea of, of some of those concerns that were, that were raised. Absolutely. It was a really helpful event. Um, it was as part of our wider um, conference. We do an annual conference every year, and this year it was in Plymouth. Um, and uh, it was an important opportunity, I think, because of where we are with Brexit negotiations, to give our, the most senior members of our industry an opportunity to talk face-to-face with government. Obviously, I do a lot of that on their behalf, but actually for government to hear directly from the businesses themselves about the issues that we have been talking about. Um, I'd say there were three key concerns. One was around employment. You would expect that. Um, our members are particularly exercised about the 30% of their employees that are EU migrants and what's going to happen to them in the short term and actually more long term, how we can continue to replenish that workforce. Um, so being able to make sure that that uh, concern was fed indirectly to to the department was, was really critical. I don't think there were any answers as yet but actually I think um, understanding the numbers and the concerns behind um, those those numbers so particularly around replenishing workforce right. the other two key issues that they were uh, concerned about was around um, you know access to the open skies agreement which is the main aviation um, single aviation market agreement for the EU with as I say with 70% of our um, passengers coming by air um, ensuring that that we had continued access to that market was critical, so that we wouldn't have extra barriers in a, uh, to prevent people being able to travel here as easily as they can. Right. Um, and the issue around welcome, particularly around ensuring that there were uh, no changes to the uh, the transit arrangements for EU uh, visitors coming from what is. Uh, two-thirds of our business. So two-thirds of all um, visitors to the UK come from the European Union right now, and that's a market that we don't suddenly want to see either tariff or visa barriers being erected in front of, because actually that's a really critical part of our business. Okay. Um, I I know we're being very well looked after here at the Holiday Inn in in Bloomsbury. I should give them a plug, Mm seeing as they're they're hosting uh, the conference today. Um, But there's a whole host of different types of venues that organisations can use for their... Uh, events and so for example just personally i was up at bt murrayfield's uh, stadium last week up in up in edinburgh which you know so it's the home of scottish rugby and i was there doing some pr training for um nhs's uh, communications team it's they, they have a communications day but it was a brilliant venue because during the lunch break we all went down had a wander on the pitch you know get photos done in the dugout so it's really great I, j- I just wondered are you seeing any trends to you know for conference organizers um to try different venues and, and of course I appreciate you represent all your members so you mm. can't show any bias but I was just wondering you know, if, what trends you're seeing in terms of events taking place. Well I think there's a growing demand for events coming to the UK which is fantastic news yeah. and I think that um, I mean you alluded to a very good example there we, we do indeed have a variety of um, venues within our membership uh, you know hotels um, obviously but also we have a number of football clubs we have a number of museums great event spaces that can actually um, host fantastically innovative conferences mm. I think what is critical no matter um, what's, what your venue type is 
is making sure that your logistics are second to none, that your Wi-Fi is good, that your service, customer service, and your food and beverage offer is good for your delegates. But actually, I also think that if you don't have the venue space to be able to do the sort of main stage plenary type events, uh, say you're a hotel, but you can provide the, the uh, bed stock, can you partner with um, other interesting venues nearby and, and be able to sort of bid together? So right. we ourselves have often used um, a multi-venue uh, um, destinations in terms of you know having the conference in one place and the bed accommodation in, in, in another. And I think actually... Um, you know, we all, we've all attended conferences in the past. You know, you, you do need to get out and see some daylight occasionally. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity for a city, a town, a destination to be able to showcase what they have to offer. Yeah. So yeah. I would encourage venues to really look at what they have to offer, but actually what proximate venues also have to bring to the table. So maybe that the total package... It you know ensures that the event comes to that particular destination rather than another one. Actually, I'm going to use this opportunity now to to lobby you to lobby your members because I went to a conference uh, last year and it was the first time I've seen so so this venue here we've got round tables which is great, but what they all need and, and Wi-Fi I have to say has been mm. very good here, but what all these places need is charging points on the table and yeah. that was the first that I went to a conference last year and they had like plug sockets and charging points for all the mobiles and the laptops and the uh, iPads. So if you can just lobby your members to to so make sure. Really, really good. <laughs> well, also, we are all trying to encourage people to tweet and to share. Exactly, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, but actually, you know, we need to give people the tools to do that free yeah. advertising on our behalf. So absolutely, yeah. very, very good. Very good tip. I shall <laughs> take it away. Brilliant. Okay, so you've got the final word on, on this podcast for, from today's conference. What do you think the outlook for this whole sector is in, in general? Well, at the moment, uh, our members are very confident about um, the the short-term outlook. So our confidence levels are at highest ever, and that is mainly due to the uh, fall in the pound. And we are making hay while the sun shines on that, and I would encourage all members of the tourism industry to do that. Um, I think what's critical um, going forward is that uh, we get the best deal possible from uh, the negotiations, so making sure that, as I say, we have access to the Open Skies Agreement, that we uh, have a, 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 the right workforce and the uh, right availability of workforce going forward, and that our welcome message is as strong as it can be. But one thing that characterises our industry is our resilience. And we've dealt with 9-11, we've dealt with ash clouds, we've dealt with foot and mouth, and Brexit is another challenge. And we need to make sure that we do what we always do, which is basically to be as resilient as possible and to uh, to keep keep calm and keep doing business throughout the the negotiations as they as they pan out. Excellent. And uh, if anyone listening wants to go for more information on uh, UK Inbound, where do where do they find out about so that? So if you can visit www.ukinbound.org. Excellent. Uh, Deirdre Wells OBE, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Russell. Well, that's it for show 39. Thanks again to Deirdre, Trevor and Jane and to all the team at uh, Meetings Industry Association for today's event. You can find out more about them at their website, which is mia-uk.org or on Twitter, which is simply at MiaUK. And uh, talking of Twitter, if you want to contact me about getting involved in this series, you can reach me there too. I'm uh, at Russ Goldsmith. Or, of course, there's a contact form on our website at csuitepodcast.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on either SoundCloud, iTunes or TuneIn by simply searching for the C-Suite Podcast and 
especially on iTunes. If you use it, please do give us a positive rating and review because um, that generally helps us uh, climb the business charts, meaning more people get to hear us. You can also join the discussion on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter as well. Again, just search for the C-Suite podcast and you should find us pretty easily. And so finally, on a couple of previous shows, I've ended with a bit of music and so as a little treat, if you're into a mix of folk and rock, uh, then you might just like this newly formed family band called Scram, consisting of Darren Marks and his two teenage sons, uh, Adam on banjo and Benjamin on drums. The trio have been compared to Mumford and Sons and also REM and you can find out more about them at scramband.com and that's S-K-R-A-M band.com so uh, to play us out this is the title track from their debut album Head Held High thanks for listening and goodbye Guiding our future to peace that will last